0: morning. Uh, me and my wife, Shan, we worship at a little reformed church plant called The Hub. Um, yeah, as Joel said, we worship uh, down at The Hub. We, uh, I study at the RTC. I'm in my first year of a master's. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me here this morning. I'm really looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, can I ask you to open your Bibles on your phone, in your hands, Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be looking at this morning. We're jumping into the middle of the life of Jacob. That's Genesis, and we're going to read the whole of chapter 29. Genesis 29, starting at verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey. And came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well." "'Jacob said to them, "'My brothers, where do you come from?' they said, "'We are from Haran.' "'He said to them, "'Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor?' "'They said, "'We know him.' "'He said to them, "'Is it well with him?' "'They said, "'It is well. "'And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep.' "'He said, "'Behold, it's still high day. "'It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together.' water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near "'and rolled the stone from the whale's mouth "'and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. "'Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. "'And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman "'and that he was Rebekah's son. "'And she ran and told her father. "'As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, "'he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him "'and brought him to his house. "'Jacob told Laban all these things,' And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, "'What is this you have done to me? "'Did I not serve you for Rachel? "'Why then have you deceived me?' "'Laban said, "'It's not so done in our country "'to give the younger before the firstborn. "'Complete the week of this one, "'and we will give you the other also "'in return for serving me another seven years.' "'Jacob did so and completed her week. "'Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel.' to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, And therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And we're going to leave it there. Let's just pray uh, before we open up this passage together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active amongst us today. We pray that as we open it up this morning, you would reach into our hearts, that you would meet with us and speak to us and change us. Please pour out your Holy Spirit, and we pray, that Lord, that you would encourage us and challenge us this morning through your word. For your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, it is a crazy story, isn't it? You know, you just read it and you get that little sick feeling in your stomach when you imagine that maybe this would happen to you. Can you imagine waking up on the morning, first day of your honeymoon, and you roll over, and it's not the woman you wanted to marry? It reminds me of the saying, truth is stranger than fiction. You couldn't concoct a better story than this, could you? It makes you shudder, it makes you feel sick I'm really excited as we're going to dig into this passage and see what this story is saying to us today. But as we start, I think what we've got to do is just backtrack a little bit on Jacob's life, don't we? We need to know what's what's happened up till now. The story actually traces all the way back to Genesis 12. Abraham, Jacob's granddad, and God came to Abraham and he said, I am going to save the world through you and your family. I'm going to fix all the mess in the world through you. Then Abraham is 100 years old when he miraculously has his child Isaac. And God passes his promise from Abraham to Isaac. And then Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have twins Esau, the hairy one, and Jacob. Esau is born first, but God makes this prophecy, a really countercultural prophecy, that the younger one, Jacob, is actually going to serve the older one, Esau. And so Jacob, the younger one, he grows up knowing this prophecy's been made about him. But his dad doesn't love him. His dad doesn't seem to care about the prophecy because Esau's his favorite. And they're always in the shed getting dirty with the V8 engines. And Jacob's growing up feeling bitter and unloved. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands and he gets deceptive. And with the help of his mother, the only person who loves him, Jacob puts on furs, pretends to be Esau, goes into his father and steals the blessing of the oldest son. And now everything in Jacob's life has fallen apart. Esau, his brother, wants to murder him. That's why he's on this journey. He's running away from his brother. He's deceived his father, ruined that relationship. He's separated from the only person who ever loved him, which is his mother. He's forced to leave the promised land, which he's meant to inherit. He's got no money, no job, no family. And so the question that we're asking as we come to this passage is, how is Jacob coping with the mess in his life? Just before this passage in chapter 28, God appears to Jacob when Jacob's in this mess, and he promises to continue the promises that he made to Abraham. He promises to be his God, to save him. How's Jacob responding to this? Surely he's going to put his trust in God and rely on him. Well, as we're going to see, Jacob's life is not transformed immediately that he enters into relationship with God. Jacob's transformation into a humble, godly man is going to take years of suffering and hardship. And we're going to start looking at those sufferings and hardships right now in chapter 29. The first thing we want to see in this passage is that Jacob pursues romantic love to fill the hole in his life. So we meet Jacob. He's journeying east. He's going in search of his mother's family. He comes to a well. He meets some shepherds. They have a conversation. It's amazing. It turns out that they know Jacob's uncle, There's a little chat. His uncle's doing well. And then by some sort of Hollywood coincidence, the shepherds go, hey, look down the road. There comes Laban's daughter now. That's that's Rachel. Rachel, she's a shepherdess. She's bringing her flocks to this well to have them watered. But there's this huge stone covering the well. This is probably a really heavy stone. It might have taken a few strong guys to move it. And the shepherds say, well, we're not going to move the stone and water the sheep until everyone's here, so we can just move it once and get the job done. Then we can put the stone back and we can all take our sheep home. But Rachel's there. She's got her sheep ready to be watered. And what does Jacob do? He strips off his shirt down to a singlet. He just walks up to the stone and he single-handedly moves it. And then he waters the sheep for Rachel. It's pretty... Amusing to see what a young guy will do in front of a pretty girl, even today. And so after Jacob's watered Rachel's sheep, he goes up and gives her a kiss, which is nothing weird. It's probably just a traditional greeting in that culture. And he starts weeping. He's so excited to have found his cousin Rachel. And then, and then he remembers his words and he introduces himself after he's kissed her and wept on her shoulder, he says, oh, by the way, I'm your cousin. Uh, I'm the son of your auntie, Rebecca. And it's followed by a big family reunion, and Jacob stays in his uncle Laban's house for a month. Things seem to be going pretty well for Jacob, don't they? But there's already a hint in this passage that something's not quite right. Because some of you might remember a similar story to this one a few chapters back in Genesis 24. And that's when Abraham sent a servant to find a wife for Isaac. And the servant came to a well. And he met a beautiful woman called Rebekah. And he went home to Rebekah's house and met her brother Laban and her father Bethuel. There's lots of similarities between these stories, but there's one conspicuous difference. Abraham's servant depends entirely on God the whole time. The whole way through the story, he's praying, and he's asking God for guidance. Whereas in this story, we don't find Jacob thinking about God once, and there's no mention of a prayer to God. There's no mention of relying on him. Because I think if Abraham's servant was led to Rebekah by God, we're going to see that Jacob is led to Rebekah because of her beauty. And Jacob hasn't yet learned to trust God. He's still doing things in his own strength, in his own way. And as we're going to see, it's not going to go very well for him. Well, like most stories, this is a story about love. It's a love story. Jacob is smitten with Rachel. He has fallen in love in a major way, and in the month since he met Rachel at the well, he has become obsessed with her. We find this out when Laban comes to Jacob after the month, and he says to Jacob, look, you've been here for long enough, I should probably pay you something for your work. And then the the storyteller makes a little interlude, and we just get this little interesting piece of information that Laban's got two daughters... Leah and Rachel. Rachel is stunning. She is beautiful in form and appearance. That means her body, her face, everything. She is sexually desirable. She's the complete package. And Jacob is so taken with her that he says to Laban, all I want in payment for my work is Rachel. It's it's the only thing I need in life. It's the only thing I care about having. And he offers to work seven years for her which is a huge bride price. Historical evidence tells us that a shepherd probably earned about 10 shekels a year. So Jacob's offering 70 shekels. That's nearly twice as much as you would usually pay for a bride. It's the offer of a man who is smitten. So smitten that the years seem to pass like a few days. And then at the end of seven years, Jacob rushes into Laban And in verse 21, he literally says, give me Rachel because I want to sleep with her. It's actually really crass, a really rude statement, especially in that culture. He's barely in control of himself. He's overcome with longing. He's desperate for love and fulfillment, and it's all going to be in Rachel. He believes that if he can just marry her, everything will be okay. All the difficulties that he's come through, They won't matter as long as he has her. I wonder if we aren't so different from Jacob as we might like to think. The idea that we have to find one true love in order to be happy and fulfilled is everywhere in our society, isn't it? Movies, TV shows, dating apps, Tinder, pop music, boyfriends and girlfriends from who knows how young at school, casual sexual relationships, extramarital affairs, divorces, remarriages, and all of it centers around a deep longing for love and sexual intimacy. And I want to ask this morning, why do we have this longing? Because I think even in our secular and enlightened society, where we don't even need God anymore, we still haven't been able to do away with our deep need to know that we matter. That we're meant for something special and meaningful and good. I want to quote a guy called Ernest Becker. He's an atheist. This is what he says has happened in our society. If we no longer have God, because we don't need Him, right? Then How am I to know that my life really matters? And one of the first ways that occurred to man was the romantic solution. It's the self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature he now looks for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We're going to keep moving through the story and see how this works out for Jacob. The second thing we want to see is that the pursuit of romantic love usually brings some sort of disappointment with it. See, the wedding day finally arrives for Jacob. And there's a ceremony, and then there's a big feast in the evening, which is probably code word for a drinking party. And due to custom, the bride is veiled throughout. Jacob's probably had a couple too many beers. We've got to remember there's no electricity. He goes into the tent he sleeps with his wife and he wakes up in the morning and he finds out that he's married and slept with Leah instead of Rachel. And you can understand that Jacob is devastated. And he rushes to Laban and he confronts him. And then did you notice in the story, he, he just seems to become this meek, submissive guy really quickly? Why, why does he just seem to accept Laban's manipulation? I want to suggest that when Jacob says, why then have you deceived me? The word deceived is actually the same word we saw a couple of chapters ago when Jacob deceived his dad. When he stole the blessing of the firstborn son and tricked his poor dying dad. And so Laban replies with these cutting words, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In other words, how dare you... The man who deceived his own father and stole the firstborn's blessing. How dare you tell me what's right and wrong? And Jacob seems to be cut to the heart. Everything clicks. And he finally realizes what he's done to his father. What does God do to change Jacob, the deceiver? He gives him a taste of his own medicine. Jacob tastes the poison that's in his own heart. He's reaped what he sowed. And so he simmers down and he meekly agrees to work another seven years in exchange for Rachel. He's probably scared that if he argues any more with Laban, Rachel might just be taken off the table entirely and he's just stuck with Leah. Well, we're going to leave Jacob there for just a moment because the story shifts its focus and suddenly the spotlight is shone onto Leah. And, To me, Leah is probably the most interesting character in this story. Because what I want to know is what's going on in her life and in her mind, which persuaded her to jump into Jacob's bed and pretend to be Rachel. Well, can I remind you what it said in verse 17? Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Leah has grown up in the shadow of her young supermodel sister all her life, and everyone has been pursuing and admiring Rachel, and no one wants Leah, not even her own dad. Jacob, he's been trying to fix the problems in his life by pursuing one true love, hasn't he? The beautiful and sexy Rachel. And Leah's not actually that different See, she desperately wants to be loved and to feel accepted and valued as well. And she thinks that if she can become a wife and a mother, then she will be someone who matters. She figures if I could just sneak into Jacob's bed just for one night, I could win him over and he would finally notice me and love me. But poor Leah is setting herself up for disappointment, just as much disappointment as Jacob, because her plan fails. And a week later, Jacob marries Rachel. And, verse 30, he loves Rachel more than Leah. And so then we see Leah shifting gears. She, she says to herself, maybe if I could bear Jacob's sons, then he's going to love me. And so she gives birth to four sons. And each time as the child's born, she says, now my husband will love me. This time my husband will be attached to me. And it doesn't work. And all of Leah's dreams, dreams of being the perfect wife and the mother, have fallen apart and she's left sharing her house with her sister and a man who doesn't love her. And at this point in the story, I think the messiness just becomes hard to process, doesn't it? You'd be excused for asking, is God actually endorsing the actions of this messy family? Why does He seem to allow this polygamous marriage? Well, first, I think it would be a mistake to say that just because there's polygamy in the story, that God is saying it's okay. Because there are a lot of terrible things in the Bible. And just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean they're approved. Secondly, we know right back in Genesis 2 that God designed marriage to be only between a man and a woman. And third, Genesis gives us a pretty clear picture of what happens when you have more than one wife. Because all the polygamous marriages in Genesis actually end in disaster. There's Abraham with Sarah and Hagar. There's Lamech with Adar and Zillah. And then there's Jacob with Leah and Rachel. And they all result in favoritism and broken relationships. There's a bitter rivalry that's going to continue for Leah and Rachel. One's going to be bearing the sons. The other's going to be barren. One's going to be loved and the other's not. Genesis is very clear, I think, that polygamy is a terrible idea. God is not endorsing the messy actions of this family. What he is doing is he's showing us the consequences of taking a good thing like romantic love and making it into a God thing. The consequences of taking a good thing like romantic love and making it into a God thing. Romantic love can't handle the expectations that we so often place on it. Your spouse or the spouse that you're one day hoping to find, can't redeem your life. Why? Because your partner is just as sinful as and imperfect as you. And if your spouse is meant to be your saviour, the one who makes you feel like you matter, like your life matters, but your spouse is a sinner just like you, then every weakness and failing of your partner becomes a direct threat to you and a threat to your happiness. For those of you who are single at the moment, this might be something that you need to hear. If you're holding up romantic love and saying, this is going to fix my life, this is what I need, this is what I'm missing, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're looking to marriage to do something that it wasn't designed to do. How do the characters in this story deal with their disappointment? How do you and I deal with our disappointment? Some of us just keep repeating the cycle. We're just endlessly searching for the one. It consumes us. It consumes our time and our money and our conversations and our virginity. It it takes over our lives. Others of us become disillusioned and bitter. We just conclude that everything is hopeless I was once a barista at Gloria Jeans. Um, I was working there um, well, when I got engaged. I came into work one day and, and one of my middle-aged customers found out that I just got engaged. And he just sat me down. And he was dead serious and he just said, don't do it. It is the worst thing you could do with your life. He'd been divorced twice. He was adamant that marriage was just going to end in disaster. He was just bitter and over it. Some of us, maybe we don't divorce our partner, but we emotionally sign out of our marriages, don't we? We just quietly give up and just kind of accept that maybe I'm just destined to be miserable. And all of this brings us to the question, what can fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts? And we find the answer to this question in the life of Leah. You may have noticed that God's only mentioned once in this whole chapter. That's in verse 31. It says this When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. These are such significant words. God sees that Leah is unloved. And He cares. He loves her when no one else does. Initially, Leah doesn't realize how good this is. She's got some idea of who God is. She's calling on His name. But she's only using Him to get what she wants, isn't she? She's trying to have a relationship with God, but she hasn't really grasped what it means yet. I wonder if that sounds like you this morning. You have a relationship with God, but it's all about asking God for things and trying to persuade Him to give you what you want. Eventually, something changes for Leah when she has her fourth son. She conceives again, and in verse 35, she says, This time I will praise the Lord. Something's changed. God opens Leah's weak eyes, and Leah understands She says, I realize that my husband doesn't love me. I realize that my father doesn't love me, and I'm okay with that because God loves me. She's no longer seeking her sense of worth in what other people think about her. She doesn't need to be a wife. She doesn't need to be a mother, a successful someone in the eyes of the world because she's found a God who loves her unconditionally. She's found a perfect father. She's found a perfect bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And the other thing we need to notice in these closing verses is who Leah gives birth to. Who is Judah? Well, it's from the line of Judah that God is going to bring Jesus Christ into the world. Do you see what God is doing here? He's choosing to bring His Messiah the saviour of the world through Leah, the ugly duckling who no one loves. And so not only does God love Leah when no one else loves her, but He chooses to do amazing things through her. Friends, this is the gospel. God became weak and humble. He became the son of Leah for us. He humbled Himself so that we could find true love so that the deepest longings of our hearts could be satisfied. God isn't in your life to help you find what you need. He is what you need. And God's love isn't something that you have to be beautiful to receive. It isn't something you have to be popular to receive or successful. Jacob didn't have to get his life together so that God would love him. Quite the opposite. God's love is for failures. People who fall on their knees and realize that they have nothing and that they can't save themselves. And when we humble ourselves in this way, God lifts us up and He uses us and He blesses us in amazing ways. So, what's this passage saying to us this morning? A couple of things in closing. Firstly, if you're a leah if you're desperately trying to find your identity and your purpose and what someone else thinks about you, then you need to realize that God loves you right now exactly as you are. You don't need to pretend with Him. He can see right through your makeup. You don't need to impress Him because you can't earn His love and you can't lose His love. Others of us here this morning might be doing a Jacob. If you're thinking that everything in your life will finally fall into place when you find that special someone. If you're thinking that when you become a parent and have kids, then your life will have meaning. If you're thinking that the problems in your marriage are the reason why your life sucks at the moment. Can I encourage you to make your expectations a bit more realistic? Don't expect your spouse to be God to you because they can't live up to those expectations and it's just going to get ugly. Find your deepest longings. Find your sense of value and purpose in God, first of all, in His love for you and His plans for you. One of the great things about realizing that marriage doesn't solve all our problems is we can actually redeem the value of singleness. In a society which says, oh, you're single, you're only half a person, you're missing something. What do we do if we're trapped in a loveless marriage? What do you do if you feel like you're in a marriage like Jacob's and Leah's? What do you do? So often, when our marriages are struggling, we focus on what the other person should be doing, don't we? But I don't think that's what this passage is saying to us. Yes, your spouse probably has some things they could work on. It's great to work at our marriages. It's great to go to counseling and to be proactive. But that's not where we should start. We have to start with ourselves and our own hearts to start by receiving the unconditional love and acceptance that comes from the Father who loves us. And when you realize how loved you are, that frees you up to love your husband or wife unconditionally. It doesn't mean that you simply become a doormat or accept unacceptable behavior. But it does force us to ask, how can I love this person as Christ has loved me? Dads, it's Father's Day, so I'm going to direct this particularly at you. When you love your wife in this way, you are modeling to your wife and your kids what it means to be loved by God, to be loved unconditionally and wonderfully. As the leader in your home, are you modeling God's love and pointing your family back to the gospel again and again? It's the best thing you can do as a dad for your family. Maybe we've already been down this messy road like the characters in this story and you've tasted the disappointment that comes from romantic relationships that don't go to plan. Maybe... This morning you don't feel like there's any hope. This passage reminds us, life is messy. Marriages are messy. Families are messy. But the mess doesn't mean that God has given up on us. No, God is right there in the mess with us, and He's using it to bring you back to Him, to show you that only He can perfectly fulfill the longings of your heart. And you can know this to be true because Jesus entered our mess, experienced our mess, dealt with our mess on the cross in order to lead us out of it. The characters in our stories went through years of hardship, but God was using it to humble them and cause them to place all their faith in God. And when we do this, we will find that the deepest longings of our hearts are satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the messy life of Jacob and Rachel and Leah that you've saved for us here in the Bible to encourage us. Lord, to encourage us not to give up when we see mess in our marriages, when we see loneliness and singleness and a longing for more. Lord, would all of these things in our lives please drive us back to you. Please take hold of our hearts. May we appreciate again how amazing your love is for us, how deep it is. Lord, we pray that that love would completely change who we are. And it would completely change the way that we love the others, other people in our lives around us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.